0: sketches by boz section eighteen this librivox recording is in the public domain reading by brad phillipone sketches by boz by charles dickens section eighteen scenes chapter eleven astley's we never see any very large staring black roman capitals in a book or shop window or placarded on a wall without their immediately recalling to our mind an indistinct and confused recollection of the time when we were first initiated into the mysteries of the alphabet we almost fancy we see the pin's point following the letter to impress its form more strongly on our bewildered imagination, and wince involuntarily, as remember the hard knuckles with which the reverend old lady, who instilled into our mind the first principles of education for ninepence per week, or ten and sixpence per quarter, was wont to poke our juvenile hand occasionally by way of adjusting the confusion of ideas in which we were generally involved. The same kind of feeling pursues us in many other instances, but there is no place which recalls so strongly our recollections of childhood as Astley's. It was not a royal amphitheatre in those days, nor had Ducro arisen to shed the light of classic taste and portable gas over the sawdust of the circus. But the whole character of the place was the same. The pieces were the same, the clown's jokes were the same. The riding-masters were equally grand, the comic performers equally witty, the tragedians equally hoarse, and the highly-trained chargers equally spirited. Astley's has altered for the better, we have changed for the worse. Our histrionic taste is gone, and with shame we confess that we are far more delighted and amused with the audience than with the pageantry we once so highly appreciated.' We like to watch a regular Astley's party in the Easter or Midsummer holidays, pa and ma, and nine or ten children, varying from five foot six to two foot eleven, from fourteen years of age to four. We had just taken our seat in one of the boxes in the centre of the house the other night, when the next was occupied by just such a party as we should have attempted to describe, had we depicted our beau idéal of a group of Astley's visitors. First of all, there came three little boys and a little girl who in pursuance of pa's directions issued in a very audible voice from the box-door occupied the front row then two more little girls were ushered in by a young lady evidently the governess then came three more little boys dressed like the first in blue jackets and trousers with lay-down shirt-collars then a child in a braided frock and high state of astonishment with very large round eyes open to their utmost width, was lifted over the seats, a process which occasioned a considerable display of little pink legs. Then came Ma and Pa, and then the eldest son, a boy of fourteen years old, who was evidently trying to look as if he did not belong to the family. The first five minutes were occupied in taking the shawls off the little girls, and adjusting the bows which ornamented their hair, Then it was providentially discovered that one of the little boys was seated behind a pillar and could not see, so the governess was stuck behind the pillar, and the boy lifted into her place. Then Pa drilled the boys and directed the stowing away of their pocket-handkerchiefs, and Ma, having first nodded and winked to the governess to pull the girls' frocks a little more off their shoulders, stood up to review the little troop an inspection which appeared to terminate much to her own satisfaction for she looked with a complacent air at pa who was standing up at the further end of the seat pa returned the glance and blew his nose very emphatically and the poor governess peeped out from behind the pillar and timidly tried to catch ma's eye with a look expressive of her high admiration of the whole family Then two of the little boys, who had been discussing the point whether Ashley's was more than twice as large as Drury Lane, agreed to refer it to George for his decision at which george who was no other than the young gentleman before noticed waxed indignant and remonstrated in no very gentle terms on the gross impropriety of having his name repeated in so loud a voice at a public place on which all the children laughed very heartily and one of the little boys wound up by expressing his opinion that george began to think himself quite a man now whereupon both ma and pa laughed too and george who carried a dress-cane and was cultivating whiskers muttered that william always was encouraged in his impertinence and assumed a look of profound contempt which lasted the whole evening the play began and the interest of the little boys knew no bounds pa was clearly interested too although he very unsuccessfully endeavoured to look as if he wasn't as for ma She was perfectly overcome by the drollery of the principal comedian, and laughed till every one of the immense bows on her ample cap trembled, at which the governess peeped out from behind the pillar again, and whenever she could catch Ma's eye put her handkerchief to her mouth, and appeared as in duty bound to be in convulsions of laughter also. Then, when the man in the splendid armour vowed to rescue the lady, or perish in the attempt— The little boys applauded vehemently, especially one little fellow who was apparently on a visit to the family, and had been carrying on a child's flirtation the whole evening with a small coquette of twelve years old, who looked like a model of her mama in a reduced scale, and who, in common with the other little girls, who, generally speaking, have even more coquettishness about them than much older ones, looked very properly shocked when the knight's squire kissed the princess's confidential chambermaid. When the scenes in the circle commenced, the children were more delighted than ever, and the wish to see what was going forward completely conquering Pa's dignity, he stood up in the box and applauded as loudly as any of them. Between each feat of horsemanship, the governess leant over to Ma, and retailed the clever remarks of the children on that which had preceded, and Ma, in the openness of her heart, offered the governess an acidulated drop and the governess gratified to be taken notice of retired behind her pillar again with a brighter countenance and the whole party seemed quite happy except the exquisite in the back of the box who being too grand to take any interest in the children and too insignificant to be taken notice of by anybody else occupied himself from time to time in rubbing the place where the whiskers ought to be and was completely alone in his glory we defy any one who has been to Astley's two or three times, and is consequently capable of appreciating the perseverance with which precisely the same jokes are repeated night after night, and season after season, not to be amused with one part of the performances at least. We mean the scenes in the circle. For ourselves we know that when the hoop, composed of jets and gas, is let down, the curtain drawn up for the convenience of the half-price on their ejectment from the ring, the orange peel cleared away, and the sawdust shaken with mathematical precision into a complete circle, we feel as much enlivened as the youngest child present, and actually join in the laugh which follows the clown's shrill shout of, "'Here we are! just for old acquaintance' sake!' nor can we quite divest ourselves of our own feeling of reverence for the riding-master who follows the clown with a long whip in his hand and bows to the audience with graceful dignity. He is none of your second-rate riding-masters in nankeen dressing-gowns with brown frogs, but the regular gentleman attended on the principal riders, who always wears a military uniform with a tablecloth inside the breast of the coat, in which costume he forcibly reminds one of a foul trust for roasting, "'He is, but why should we attempt to describe that of which no description can convey an adequate idea? "'Everybody knows the man, and everybody remembers his polished boots, his graceful demeanour, stiff as some misjudging persons have in their jealousy considered it, and the splendid head of black hair parted high on the forehead, to impart to the countenance an appearance of deep thought and poetic melancholy.' his soft and pleasing voice too is in perfect unison with his noble bearing as he humours the clown by indulging in a little badinage and the striking recollection of his own dignity with which he exclaims now sir if you please inquire for miss Woolford, sir can never be forgotten the graceful air too, with which he introduces Miss Wolford into the arena, and after assisting her to the saddle, follows her fairy courser round the circle, can never fail to create a deep impression in the bosom of every female servant present. When Miss Wolford and the horse and the orchestra all stop together to take breath, he urbanely takes part in some such dialogue as the following, commenced by the clown: "I say, sir. Well, sir." It's always conducted in the politest manner. Did you ever happen to hear I was in the army, sir? No, sir. Oh, yes, sir. I can go through my exercise, sir. Indeed, sir. Shall I do it now, sir? If you please, sir, come, sir. Make haste. A cut with the long whip and, ha, done now. I don't like it from the clown here the clown throws himself on the ground and goes through a variety of gymnastic convulsions doubling himself up and untying himself again and making himself look very like a man in the most hopeless extreme of human agony to the vociferous delight of the gallery until he is interrupted by a second cut from the long whip and a request to see what miss Woolford's stopping for on which to the inexpressible mirth of the gallery he exclaims now miss Woolford." what can i come for to go for to fetch for to bring for to carry for to do for you ma'am On the ladies announcing with a sweet smile that she wants the two flags they are with sundry grimaces procured and handed up the clown facetiously observing after the performance of the latter ceremony he he oh i say sir miss wilford knows me she smiled at me another cut from the whip a burst from the orchestra a start from the horse and round goes miss wilford again on her graceful performance to the delight of every member of the audience young or old the next pause affords an opportunity for similar witticisms the only additional fun being that of the clown making ludicrous grimaces at the riding-master every time his back is turned and finally quitting the circle by jumping over his head having previously directed his attention another way Did any of our readers ever notice the class of people who hang about the stage doors of our minor theatres in the daytime? You will rarely pass one of these entrances without seeing a group of three or four men conversing on the pavement with an indescribable public-house parlour swagger, and a kind of conscious air peculiar to people of this description. They always seem to think they are exhibiting. The lamps are ever before them. That young fellow, in the faded brown coat and very full light green trousers, pulls down the wristbands of his check shirt, as ostentatiously as if it were of the finest linen, and cocks the white hat of the summer before last, as knowingly over his right eye, as if it were a purchase of yesterday. Look at the dirty white Berlin gloves, and the cheap silk handkerchief stuck in the bosom of his threadbare coat is it possible to see him for an instant and not come to the conclusion that he is the walking gentleman who wears a blue surtout clean collar and white trousers for half an hour and then shrinks into his worn-out scanty clothes who has to boast night after night of his splendid fortune with a painful consciousness of a pound a week and his boots to find to talk of his father's mansion in the country with a dreary recollection of his own two-pair back in the new cut and to be envied and flattered as the favoured lover of a rich heiress, remembering all the while that the ex-dancer at home is in the family way and out of an engagement. Next to him, perhaps, you will see a thin, pale man, with a very long face, in a suit of shining black, thoughtfully knocking that part of his boot which once had a heel with an ash stick. He is the man who does the heavy business, such as prosy fathers, virtuous servants, curates, landlords, and so forth by the way talking of fathers we should very much like to see some piece in which all the dramatis personae were orphans fathers are invariably great nuisances on the stage and always have to give the hero or heroine a long explanation of what was done before the curtain rose usually commencing with it is now nineteen years my dear child since your blessed mother here the old villain's voice falters confided you to my charge you were then an infant etc etc or else they have to discover all of a sudden that somebody whom they have been in constant communication with during three long acts without the slightest suspicion is their own child in which case they exclaim ah what do i see this bracelet that smile these documents those eyes can i believe my senses it must be yes it is it is my child my father exclaims the child and they fall into each other's arms and look over each other's shoulders and the audience give three rounds of applause to return from this digression we were about to say that these are the sort of people whom you see talking and attitudinizing outside the stage doors of our minor theatres at astley's they are always more numerous than at any other place there is generally a groom or two sitting on the window-sill, and two or three dirty, shabby, genteel men in checked neckerchiefs and sallow linen lounging about, and carrying perhaps under one arm a pair of stage-shoes badly wrapped up in a piece of old newspaper. Some years ago we used to stand looking open-mouthed at these men with a feeling of mysterious curiosity the very recollection of which provokes a smile at the moment we are writing. We could not believe that the beings of light and elegance, in milk-white tunics, salmon-coloured legs, and blue scarfs, who flitted on sleek, cream-coloured horses before our eyes at night, with all the aid of lights, music, and artificial flowers, could be the pale, dissipated-looking creatures we beheld by day. We can hardly believe it now. Of the lower class of actors we have seen something, and it requires no great exercise of imagination to identify the walking gentleman with a dirty swell, the comic singer with the public-house chairman, or the leading tragedian with drunkenness and distress. But these other men are mysterious beings, never seen out of the ring, never beheld but in the costume of gods and sylphs, with the exception of Crow, who can scarcely be classed among them who ever knew a rider at Astley's, or saw him but on horseback? Can our friend in the military uniform ever appear in threadbare attire, or descend to the comparatively unwanted costume of everyday life? Impossible! We cannot, we will not believe it! End of section 18